0: Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher coach Bobby Julik and outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik and as always, I'm here with Gus Morton. How you doing today, Gus?
2: Bobby, I'm doing really well. I'm doing really, really well. I think I'm uh, a little fresher than most of those riders are probably feeling now after a couple of hard days in uh, in the mountains. Worth noting, I think uh, before, we get to, before we get to the, the regular lay of the land, there's a, a bit of overnight news. A few things went down uh, after yesterday's stage that I feel like we should touch on before we get into... Uh, Today, first thing, joan Ofredo, uh, Stage seven's most aggressive rider. He fell ill overnight and then yesterday was dropped uh, and he fought valiantly. Uh, when we went to air yesterday, he was still out in the road and he managed to make time cut um, despite having gastro. So valiant effort from him. There's also something that I wanted to note about his performance which just makes it all the more exceptional was earlier this year, well, here, I'll, I'll, I'll just take his quote. He said, Two months ago, when I had digressive quadriplegia, that is, he was uh, momentarily incapacitated as a quadriplegic after a crash, I said I would never complain on the bike again. Frankly, I failed because I complained a lot of times. I couldn't take it anymore. I turned myself inside out. I said to myself only one thing abandoning is out of the question. The tour may abandon me, but I don't abandon the tour. And uh, so that's. Incredible, um, mighty impressive. Another really inspirational story from the tour this year. Worth noting, he crashed first thing in the stage this morning, and then was promptly dropped, and is uh, currently still out on the road. So, man, let's give him our uh, let's give him our energy, and, and hope that he can uh, pull through today, and, 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 and can fight fight on. Another uh, another thing I wanted to raise yesterday, post stage, Jakob Fuglsang, uh, Dan Martin, and Bauke Olimar all. Went straight to the press, criticising the motorbikes for being too close to the uh, the duo of Ala Alaphilippe. Fuglsang went so far as to say that he had uh, he would have been with the duo had it not been for the motorbike. Um, I read that and watched the footage back, and uh, there was two distinct things that I noticed. One was the lack of motorbikes in the picture. In fact, the only pictures that were available of Ala Philippe and Pinot's attack were from the helicopter, because of the uh, there was a stark absence. Of motorbikes in the climb and you'll also note that second wheel at the time of their attack was Fuglsang and he evidently pulled out to try and follow but couldn't so interesting there I wonder if that's a bit of sour grapes from Fugl or uh or if it's uh if there's some truth to the matter but either way there has been a lot of conversation about motorbikes overnight so what do you reckon uh Bobby motorbikes too influential
1: yeah I mean when we had Juan Antonio Fletcher on a couple days ago, and he was explaining what happened to him in the semi-classic of Gent-Wevelgem a few years back. I don't think there's any way to make this go away. It's going to be part of the sport. You know, those camera guys are always trying to get the best little view, the best shot. And yeah, sometimes it, it helps you and sometimes it hurts you. But when when multiple guys come out and say something it's an issue and we, we need to look at that and it's not the rider's fault at all it's the the motorcycle driver has to be a little bit more on point but you know there's that little thing in the rearview mirror that says objects are closer than they may appear so <laughs> that maybe they just need to get a little bit better rearview mirror or have a little bit better instruction.
2: Yeah, I think you're right there, and that's uh, a very good point. Objects are closer than they appear, and we've seen it a few times: uh, riders shooing the motorbike away. Let's get on to today's stage, Saint Etienne to Briord, 170.5 k with a 9.8 kilometer neutral. Today's Bastille Day, the biggest day of the year in uh, in France, the equivalent of the Fourth of July in the U.S. Um, Bobby, you've, 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 you've uh, got some facts here for us. 32 French riders have won on Bastille Day. So uh, they're always on. And another note, uh, Briord is uh, Romain Bardet's hometown. So there was a lot of uh, emphasis being placed on Romain Bardet and his presence in this race by, by having the stage on today finish in his hometown, um, as we'll get to, to no avail. Tough, another tough day in the Massive Central. There was a Cat 1 followed by a, uh, a Cat 3 and then another Cat 3 which topped out at 12 kilometres to go, which also had a time bonus on it. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good stage. What, what other facts we got here? Vincenzo Nibali won a stage uh, from here when he won on his route to the Tour win, actually, uh, a couple of years ago in 2014. So, you know, there's a bit of pedigree here. The finish for today's stage, long downhill run, Relatively straight shot into town. There was notable 400 meters to go, a, uh, a roundabout there, or a little over 400 meters to go. Sorry, 1.4 kilometers to go. Let's uh, let's let's talk the details. But before we do, Bobby, I think you've got a message from our sponsors.
1: I do, I do. Um, you know, Road ID is definitely sponsoring us and doing a lot around the Tour de France. And I recently, I've I've had one for years. I think probably 10 years now. I've I've had a Road ID. But I recently got a new shipment in, I think I told you about getting the little fix ID dog tag and Mm -hmm. the stretch. And when it came, it was so cool, this little personalized note, and I just wanna give her a little shout out, Becky. Becky was the lady that packed my order. And she sent me a little note that said, hello, I had a great time packing your order today. I've been at Road ID for eight wonderful years. And it feels like I'm knowing our products and they make a real difference in people's lives. Enjoy your new gear, Becky. I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty nice. But on the other flip side, which I found kind of interesting, which is something really, really cool and shows you how cool of a company this is. They had like a little questionnaire. And do you want me to read the answers and the questions to her little questionnaire that she had on the backside of this card? Yeah, please do. Definitely. Okay. So question number one was celebrity crush. And she put down Blake and Miranda, or Blake Miranda. First car, 88 Ford Escort. Wait, (laughs) keep going. First concert, ZZ Top. Favorite movie, Urban Cowboy. Favorite fruit and or vegetable. She likes peaches and green beans. Favorite (laughs) cocktail of choice. She likes vodka and diet Mountain Dew, or the voodoo. Never tried that. The, uh, her, the best decade and why. She put down the 80s. I love the big hair. And her favorite animal is a kitty cat. So thank you very much, Becky, for putting together my order and giving me some information about yourself. I thought that was really cool. But
2: Yeah, okay. sh- shout out to Becky right there. Uh, Blake and Miranda, they were a dynamite couple.
1: Okay, enough of that. All right, it's time to get on to, di- to today's daily dose of Road ID tour trivia. To play, head on over to roadid.com slash tour de France. Today's question, prior to this year, when was the last French victory on Bastille Day? I think I actually know that one. That wasn't too long ago, was it? Yeah, head on over to RoadID dot com slash tdf to answer this question and score the chance to win today's daily prize which is a tax bike trainer always need one of those you know you see those guys warming down on them warming up on them fantastic one lucky winner will even take home a ten thousand dollar bmc shopping spree again that's roadid.com slash tdf
2: bobby thanks for that and uh Let's move on to the day. Let's move on to today's stage. Another good little battle, another solid slog uh, for all the riders, whether, you, whether you're a sprinter or you're the guys in the break. It was, uh, it was solid out there.
1: How, um, let's go back to the start. How did the break form? That was, as we say, a la pedal again. It was a very quick start. I think Niels Pollitt was the first guy to attack, but then a big group got off the front and they just persisted. And why I think that group got away... As quickly as it did, although it wasn't right from the gun, was that there were so many teams represented. You know, we had 14 guys in the initial move. I think 13 teams were represented. And then it seemed like that was the break of the day until all of a sudden you had Soler from Movistar decide, you know what, I'm gonna make the day a little bit harder on myself. I'm gonna try to bridge this, what, minute gap or minute and a half gap all by myself. And I I had to say, I started laughing. I was like, well, good luck on that, buddy. But he did benefit from having that cat one come up pretty soon. So once the break was established, they thought, okay, 14 guys up here, this is great. So they just started kind of going their tempo. They knew that the Peloton was going to sit up. And Soler was actually able to bridge, making it 15 in the break. And then even later than him... Rui Costa, the ex-world champion from 2012, decided, well, if he can do it, I can do it. His was a but, big max calculation,
2: wasn't it? Like, he left it till the, 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 the break had two minutes already before he yeah. decided he would jump from the bunch. This is Bold. the Tour
1: de France, man. Um, <laughs> you got to be a little bit more on point. But you can just imagine when 14 teams are up the road that those other eight teams must be absolutely yelling into the radio. We need someone in the break. We need someone in the break. And that's the time when the group already has two minutes. That's the time where you act like you don't hear what the director is saying coming over the radio. Like, oh what what? Oh no, gosh, my radio <laughs> fell out of my ear. Because who wants to do that? Because you're putting yourself definitely in the crosshairs in harm's way. Because trying to bridge to a 14-man group or a 15-man group by yourself in the Tour de France that that's quite difficult. That's quite difficult. So
2: it looked like when, uh, you know, he kind of had the deadline at the top of the uh, cat one to get onto that group. And and when he didn't, there was a moment there he had with his, uh, his director when the director came up and he yelled at him and and maybe it was that maybe it was like saying, I knew we shouldn't have gone. I knew I shouldn't have chased it. Why did you tell me to do this?
1: Oh Um, man. I I hope they have a camera (laughs) in the car recording that conversation because that, that must've been pretty, pretty touchy to say the least. But Absolutely. yeah, what, you know, let's instead of going down the 14 teams that were in the break, let's talk about the 14 teams that di- or the eight teams that didn't make the break. You had Ineos, yeah. De Koynick, Francis de Joux, Astana, UAE, Emirates, CCC, Wanty Goubert, and Katusha. So that, to me, tells a lot, right? Like hmm. Ineos, they have bigger fish, fish to fry down the road. Frances de Joux, they have bigger fish to fry down the road. It being Bastille Day, you would have thought that a couple of the French guys from that team may have wanted to get in, but that tells me that they're all looking after after Pinot. Astana, mm-hmm. uh, same thing. You know, they they could have been up there. That was a perfect stage for some of their riders, but you know now fatigue is starting to set in, and the tactics are coming into uh, into play. So another long day out there on on the wheels in that breakaway. And you're starting to see these teams starting to save their matches a little bit.
2: Yeah, exactly. And let's talk about um, a couple of the standout moments. The, you know, obviously the big standout moments was noticeable ab- absences from some of those those teams and, and as you said, like some tactics really starting to become, you know, obvious now and in and, and, and which teams are sort of fancying themselves. What are some of the standout moments from this today's stage?
1: Yeah, there wasn't really much to talk about once that break settled in and Solera caught and and um, Costa didn't. It was just mm. kind of like you're waiting for the shoe to drop. You're waiting to see who's that first guy that's going to light it up. And I was actually pulling for Tony Martin. I thought that that would have been pretty cool if he, you know, one showed the old Tony Martin and attacked from far out where no one just rode everyone off his wheel. But the the status quo was kind of broken when the Bora rider Postalberger, decided yeah. that okay. You know, I can't sprint. I'm going to go for it. And yeah, it had a pretty good margin there for a second, 45 seconds or whatnot. And then that just got everyone started licking their lips and you were just waiting, waiting, waiting. And then when you got to the climbs, then then the fireworks started going off, right? You had Nicholas Roach being quite active, um, who maybe we should touch on a little bit because... The zombie of Nicholas Roach. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So he didn't abandoned the other day so that's yeah that's no good to-
2: I need to uh I need to uh issue an official uh retraction and an apology to uh to Nico I was fed some misinformation the other day about Nico Roach crashing and then subsequently abandoning the race but uh as we saw today the zombie of Nico Roach he's returned and uh he's not dead yet and he was Absolutely alive and kicking today out there in front. So my apologies for uh to all the listeners out there, to all the fans, and as well as uh to Nico himself for calling that incorrectly the other day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the zombie. I love it, I love it. So yeah, getting into that final climb with the time bonuses up for grabs, which these guys definitely didn't really care much about, but it was a great launch pad for the overall victory. And yeah, you had Roach and Benote and Daryl Impey on that last climb, lighting it up. It looked like it was good. And then, man, Impey just really impressed me there because this guy has yeah. been getting top three in sprint finishes. And this was a sticky little Berg that he had to get over and to uh, Benute, sorry, was, is a better climber and yep. he attacked and Impey kind of like let him go and then went across to him and, in ultimately formed the, the race-winning duo. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, Nicholas, it. the zombie roach, wasn't able to, to, to keep pace there. And then it was just, you know, two guys against, what, four or five. And then, you mm-hmm. know, the, the group had shattered by that time. And once they got that gap, they started working well together. Impey knew he was the better sprinter. Banoot was just kind of pulling through. And, you know, I think the inevitable happened we all would have been very surprised if T-Spinute would have been able to out-sprint Daryl Impey there at the end. But what a day for Michelton Scott. What a day for South Africa. To win a stage yeah. of the tour wearing your national championship jersey, that's got to be something special. So hats off to him.
2: Yeah, he had an exceptional ride. He's, uh, he showed some real tactical now and, uh, and he's just obviously in great condition. The way he went across on that climb was unbelievable. Before we move on to talk about uh, today's... Uh, theme which is nutrition I just also wanted to mention that uh, Richie Port made it through stage nine or uh, stage eight plus one as all the Australians have been calling it because uh, the last couple of years he's uh, he's abandoned the tour on 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 stage nine so he's got that monkey off his back let's hopefully uh, let's hopefully see if that's a a, that's a good omen Um, actually it might be worth before we move on it might be worth talking about um, that final climb for the group
1: yeah that was very interesting to see you know, getting the monkey off his back, he actually ignited or, or followed Bardet. I think Bardet and his team wanted to make some sort of statement and say, hey, I'm here. Uh, they got up the road with, with, with Port and Chryswick. And to me, OK, I didn't really quite understand the tactics there, but it was a little bit to me of an insecurity Check, like, hey, am mm-hmm. I good? Because you didn't see Garrett Thomas, you didn't see Bernal, you didn't see Ala Philippe. They, they know they're good. But these three guys, there's still, I think, questions in their head because why else would you do something like that? And Ex- yes, exactly I mean, right. I'm so happy to see Richie Port, one of my favorite riders, worked with him a long time ago. I love the guy to see him actually finally make it through this stage in the tour because the last couple years years have just been heartbreaking that poor guy so you know maybe a little form check but um you know that's that's a little bit more energy that you could have saved
2: yeah exactly right so that was that was as you just said an interesting move just there and uh Ineos shutting that down with like four guys in the front so again another little power play let's move on to the Superfan. we've got him waiting in the wings how you
0: doing Superfan? i'm great i'm great guys pretty pretty boring stage up until that last climb when um Banute and Roach set it off a little bit out of that group. A uh, moment for me was was just watching um, imps come across to those two over that, the top of that climb. That was uh, even more exciting than the sprint for me was just watching him bridge that gap to get up mm-hmm. to that front group. So uh, let's talk a little bit about nutrition today. Um, for those of us not genetically predisposed to being whip it thin, the weight management aspect of cycling can be tougher and the training, the long hours and the saddle, the intervals. Um, and, you know, eating habits and diets in general have evolved significantly over the last 20 or 30 years. I'm kind of, I'm sure we'd all be a little appalled if we looked back at some of the fads we subscribed to back in the 90s and 2000s. I had the popcorn diet for a while and the carrot diet, <laughs> which topped my list of terrible ideas. Um, so, but obviously unhealthy eating habits uh, eating disorders and body image issues deserve serious discussion in the sport, uh, mm-hmm. but I was hoping today you guys could talk a little bit about the more crazy, outlandish ways teammates tried to drop weight over the years and how you feel about kind of weight loss in the sport in general
1: weight loss yeah that that seems to be a major point for all cyclists, especially the guys that the g c guys that need to go up these these mountains because you know watts per kilogram power is so important. Um, I'd have to say that I was pretty, I was pretty mellow. I think you can ask my wife. I was not the guy that was weighing my food and counting every calorie. I kind of just naturally always ate according to how I felt. I wasn't a stickler. You know, I'd, I'd have that occasional hamburger. I'd have ice cream and I'd have a crepe. I mean, we were living in France, so you have to have crepes, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, some of these guys seem to take it to uh, a major extreme. And now that everything is so dialed and you can look at your carbohydrate combustion rate, your fat combustion rate, it it really, really makes it difficult for these guys to actually enjoy. You know, when I first started racing, when I was on the Chevrolet LA Sheriff team in 1994, I would, we would go out to dinner quite often at Sizzler Steakhouse. Do you guys remember? I don't even know if Sizzler is around anymore, but it was basically that American all you could eat buffet line, Right. And it was cheap as chips, so, what, nine bucks for the whole buffet? And we would go in there as a team and just destroy that buffet. Like, they didn't know what hit them. You know, these five to eight little skinny cyclist guys walk in there with weird tans, and then all of a sudden they're having to replace everything on the buffet. (laughs) And one of my teammates, Tom Craven, who's a very close friend of mine to this day, he used to tell me, Bobby... If you can push yourself away from the table and walk comfortably to the door, you didn't eat enough. So that was kind of ingrained in me from a very early start was the more I eat, the more energy I'm going to have for the next day, which is definitely isn't the case. Right. (laughs) But, but yeah, it it didn't seem to be a major concern for me. And maybe genetically it was just the the way I was, because I know there's a lot of guys out there that stress about this quite, quite heavily. Mm. The strangest thing that I've ever seen for guys trying to lose weight is, you know, obviously not eating, but that's not totally crazy when you think about losing weight. Um, Guys going on apple diets or coming back from a five or six hour training ride and having soup, nothing more than just soup. And I once had a teammate that told me that he would eat celery after a ride because it actually took more energy to digest that celery than yeah. nutrients and calories that you consumed by digesting it. So he said he he always thought it was like a negative, negative balance there, but still gave your mind the impression, because it was crunchy, that you were actually eating something. Um but yeah, guys weighing their food, counting their calories. That just wasn't my my gig. I I I was pretty pretty mellow with that.
2: Yeah, I think it's an interesting part of this sport, like um you know, the more and more scientific it gets and, and, and the more and more, you know, the reality of powder weight becomes a major issue, this sort of thing is going to, uh, <clears throat> going to continue to become more and more important, basically, being, being weight. But uh, I think that psychological effect um, that that has on or potentially can have, particularly on young athletes, um, I think really needs addressing because, you know, if we were to look at a guy like, you know, Chris Froome who is, you know, legendarily skinny... Um, and and you celebrate, you know, that body image and then you realise, wait a second, what impact is that? You know, we essentially celebrate him as, as an exceptional athlete, which he is, and he's obviously in a controlled environment and, and knows what he's doing and has people around him. But are we not... Is that not um, potentially having a negative impact on young people coming into this sport and stuff. And I know, like, I've made no secret about this. Like, I've had plenty of, of, of issues with eating and that type of thing in, over my, the course of my career. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's like it is something that needs to be addressed and I don't think athletes, the athletes talk about it enough um, or, yeah, but, uh, but inevitably it's part of the sport and I think if we can make it a conversation and we can uh, highlight a healthy way of uh, participating in sport... Yeah,
1: I think there there is definitely the difference between those guys that are on regime, as Mm. Sean Yates back in the Motorola days used to call it, where they're 100% just focused, there's no extra calories going in there, there's no junk food, and then once they finish their race or finish their objective, then they just kind of lose the plot and just start eating everything, so... Mm. A guy like Chris that you mentioned, yeah, he had to make a serious adjustment to his diet um, about seven, eight years ago. But then you see him in the off season and he never has more than like two or three kilos of extra weight on. So he's Mm. he's pretty serious all year long. But then you see those guys like Jan Ulrich, your favorite rider of all time. You know, the the moment the Tour de France was over, it's like that guy just packed on the weight like amazingly, like,
0: Mm. you know,
1: 15, 20 kilos. So that's where I think that if you're going to commit to being skinny, that you just can't let yourself kind of go off the reservation too far. I'm not saying that after a big objective that you can't go and have some pizza and some beers and relax a little bit and you know stop worrying about your caloric intake, but just kind of keep it on the level a little bit. So that's where I think I was. I never fluctuated when I was riding too much over so I wouldn't have to do those absolute crash diets to to get back down to race weight. But, you know, I have a 16 year old daughter and it's very similar with with young women. You know, they see these mm. people in, in the in the magazines and on TV that are so perfect and airbrushed and, you know, they their body image is affected by that. And it's the same thing with with cyclists looking at somebody like Chris Frome or Roman Bardet. Like you, you exactly can't right. you can't just snap your fingers and be that skinny it it takes a lot of time and and you've got to stay on that 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 healthy way of doing it which there are very very yeah, tons of ways to to lose weight but i always speak with my clients there's a difference between losing weight and losing body fat percentage and just coming back from a ride or not eating and not drinking and then you get on the the scale and you're two kilos lighter and you think oh yeah you know this is this is my weight No, no, it's not like you got to take it Mm. consistently. You want to see those little tiny, um, you want to cut out little bit by bit. I always say two to 300 calories a day, which maybe means not having that dessert. I'm not saying cut out a thousand calories a day or 1500 calories a day, but those little tiny steps are much better than just going all or nothing. And that's exactly it. Like in it it's all about
2: education and, and I think that also highlights um the importance of a coach and the importance of, you know, if you're going to take your sport seriously, the first thing you need to do is 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 consult with professionals and people who have experience and know what they're doing. Like Coach Bobby J. Bobby, let's talk more generally about diet and, and, and I wanna talk and nutrition, sorry, and, and nutrition on a big race like this, right? It's changed a lot over the years, the way in which riders are fed, um, the way in which riders choose to feed themselves and, and the understanding of diet. I want to ask you, like, back in the day, right, and, and I guess still now, you, you, like, teams will go to a race and, and they're fed by whatever hotel they're at and they kind of get given, they don't get to choose. It's just like a, a buffet. Was this the same back in the day when you were racing, say, the Tour de France and... If so, how do you kind of handle this?
1: Well, today, everyone has their own kitchen truck and their own personal chefs. So they, they're eating basically Michelin star meals every night. So that has definitely <laughs> changed compared to back when I was racing. <laughs> back when I was racing, yeah, we were staying at the, the cheapest hotels, the, the Campanile, the, the These the, These hotels just didn't have the kitchen or the kitchen staff that knew anything about nutrition. So, mm. yeah, we had to eat. What was put out in front of us? We didn't have all the the bells and whistles that they have now. But I tell you, two things that you can change that changed the way that I ate, which would turn every unpalatable, crappy meal into at least palatable, was two things that you can find in almost every restaurant all around the world ketchup and Tabasco Mm -hmm. sauce. Those two things absolutely saved my life. Uh, especially early days over in Europe on, on teams like Cofidis and Credit Agricole. So now, now you got those, those, those cooks that are amazing and you got all the little sauce boxes so you can flavor it every way you wanted. But those two things, ketchup and Tabasco sauce, whew, I owe it to, to them for getting me through a lot.
2: I, I used to always bring, uh, I used to bring my own coffee and I used to bring with a little like pour over thing and I used to also bring my own chocolate. When, you, when, you, when you're in France and you're staying in the boarding house and you roll down to dinner and you've got a wet baguette, like literally I don't even know how the bread gets wet, but you just somehow got wet bread for dinner. You know that back in your room you've got, you've got like a block of, of chocolate that you can kind of like get yourself through.
1: Oh, absolutely. Comfort food is is massive. You know, when I first got over to Europe, they didn't have Starbucks. And, you know, you, whatever airport you went through, and Starbucks is, is not the... Mm. highest quality of coffee, but, like, it was just that one thing, like, oh, gosh, home. I, I yep. feel comfortable. McDonald's, like, that was a, a, a Peloton favorite, like, after a big sta- stage race, like, going to McDonald's. I don't think I've been to McDonald's in America for you know, 15 years, but mm. over there, like, it, it was like that little thing that just gave you that touch of home that made you feel a little bit more relaxed.
2: I wanted to ask you, when did teams begin bringing their own chefs?
1: Oh wow we'd have to go back. I would say, to my knowledge, my personal knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, back in the Motorola days, we had a Swiss gentleman named Willie, chef Willie, and this guy was would cook for the for the team Motorola, and I think he was one of the first kind of team chefs because he could speak French, and that was always the difficult part back in the day, and that's the reason why all these these teams have food trucks. Is even at the crappiest restaurant, you got a chef and French chefs or chefs in general have ego and they have the way that they work and Mm -hmm. they don't like anybody in their kitchen. So that's the reason why all these teams have their own trucks, because they just couldn't deal with the day to day of, oh, we're allowed into this kitchen because the guy is cool. We gave him Mm -hmm. a hat. We gave him a water bottle. We stroked his ego a little bit. But no matter what we did the next day, that guy wouldn't let us in the kitchen. But Willie had a very, very smooth way of operating, and, and he got in there. So, yeah, I'd have to say in the early 90s was when Willie started traveling with the team, and I think he started working with, with U.S. Postal for, for years and years and years as well. I think he's retired now. There was always the Italians that seemed to have a little bit of a head start on that as well because the Italians just could not deal with the pasta in France. Like, when you're brought up eating al dente pasta with beautiful sauces and parmesan cheese that's made from your hometown, you can't go and eat just this waterlogged crap that they call pasta in France. Hell no. But hopefully, hopefully they, they've improved on that a little bit.
2: And uh, on that, when you've got, you know, the chef or, or when you had sort of Chef Willie in the kitchen, were you able to, like... Requests like "Hey, hey, chef, I want like a uh, a souffle tonight," or like, was he accommodating any dietary requirements, or was it pretty kind of regimented? And and did you and were you fussy with your food as a rider, Bobby?
1: Okay, first off, you could request some stuff, and the biggest thing was that he had to feed the whole team, right? I don't mm-hmm. think he was taking individual orders yeah. for everyone. But I remember we had this lady named Francois on Team Kofidis, and she wasn't a cook, but she would facilitate getting the food from the kitchen to the table because you know guys are getting done with massages at different times you're trying to eat as soon as you can so that you can get to bed she was that conduit between the kitchen and the table that okay when you sit down here's your salad and she'd keep an eye on everybody and then be like okay Bobby's almost done with his salad I'm gonna go get his pasta now then when he's almost done with that I'm gonna get his meat dish and then his dessert you know whatever she was phenomenal that was the kind of the old school way of doing it. I'd say the only time that you could actually get something special would have been in the morning as far as people like their eggs cooked a different way. Do you want an omelet? Do you want it plain? Do you want it with cheese and ham? Uh, do you want it over easy, fried, scrambled, whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I won't lie, and my wife will back, back this up. I'm, I'm a picky eater, no doubt about it. Um, didn't like fish. I grew up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, where the only fish that we had was rainbow trout, which if you know rainbow trout, it's like the fishiest of all fishes. Like my mom (laughs) would cook it and it would just stink in the house for days. And that just kind of jaded me. And living in Colorado, you don't get much seafood anyway. Um, I also didn't like cooked green vegetables, and to this day, my kids they woof down broccoli and green beans and peas, and I, I still put that stuff off to the side. I can eat it raw. <laughs> I love raw vegetables, but as soon as you cook anything or boil anything, that that fragrance just goes uh, just haywire in my brain. So <laughs> I, I was I was uh, a picky guy, no doubt about it. There you go. I didn't I didn't think I
2: picked you for a picky eater, actually, Bobby. But there you go. Interesting. Before we move on, we've got uh, uh, Bijou in the wings. Worst race meal?
1: Oh, man, you try to just delete those like a memory card out of your brain. But I'll just kind of give you that late mid to late 90s typical French meal at any stage race throughout the year, whether it be Tour de Med, Paris Nice or the Tour de France. Uh, you'd sit down hungry as, as can be, and they always had, you know, some bread on the table and sometimes that bread was there. And sometimes you had to wait up to an hour because remember the, the restaurants were like, Oh, we got to wait until everybody's here before we start the, the presentation. But so mm-hmm. you'd, you'd have that bread on the table and hopefully some butter and just kind of woof that down right away. That, that started things off pretty good. But then the salad would come out and it would be this shady little tiny plate of salad, not like a bowl of salad that you could really sink your teeth into, but it was shredded carrots, diced tomatoes, and maybe like two or three green beans. And very maybe maybe if you're lucky, you had like a little tiny vinaigrette that you could put on it, salt and pepper, blah, blah, blah. Then the pasta would come out, and the pasta, like I said before, is just so overcooked. There's no such thing as al dente. It, it would come out basically at the consistency of mashed potatoes. All the nutrients totally cooked out of the food, just <laughs> hideous. And their yeah. idea of pasta sauce was basically they opened up a can of yeah. tomato sauce, no, no, no croutons, no Parmesan cheese, nothing. and It was just a red sauce, and that's where Tabasco and ketchup really saved my life. Then you would either have... A choice of chicken, fish, normally chicken or fish. Like if you got steak, you were stoked, but you could guarantee that steak was like the bottom of the barrel, rot gut, you know, on, on discount (laughs) from, from the local butcher that they couldn't sell to anybody else. But so, like I said, I wouldn't get the fish. So I'd always try to get the chicken. The chicken would come out just bleached white. It'd be so like boiled overcooked that it just had no color. It looked like cadaver flesh. And you had to sit there and actually find a way to make it palatable. And again, thus the salt, the pepper, the Tabasco sauce, and the ketchup. And the, if you did have dessert, which not all the times that you did, because a lot of the times you were just so, your appetite was so gone by then because you were trying to woof down this, these calories that had no taste. There was always the pom, which is apple, apple pie, apple cake, and you know, that sounds great, right? Like I love a piece of Tarte de right now. But when you have that every single day for 16 years of my career, <sighs> you, you got quite picky at it. I became quite the connoisseur. I could take one bite of it or I could even look at it and say, no, 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 no I'm not even going to touch that one. And then they bring out a couple cheap yogurts. You know, you would try to sloth that on the top of the t- Tarte de poem just to, to make it look like it was like a birthday cake or something like that. And yeah, that was it. And it was not fun. You would go to bed quite hungry. And that's when I started bringing my own like little tricks with me, like my peanut butter. Maybe I'd go down to the store and, and get a like a real baguette, but it was almost like closet eating. Like yeah. you, you didn't want to offend your teammates or the restaurant. So quite often I'd have stuff in my suitcase and I'd go back up to my room and, and woof it down. Or I used to bring a little blender with me and to make my protein shake at night, I would go down to the truck, I'd get a banana, I'd get a can of apple juice, I'd get my protein powder, and then mm-hmm. just crank up a little shake before dinner because otherwise you'd go to bed hungry.
2: Man, that, yeah, you've painted, you've painted a pretty grim picture, which, dude, that's what it's, that's what it's like. It's funny that you, you, you take all of this really good care of yourself at home, right? And then you turn up to a race and they're like, here's this slop, go ride 250Ks yep. tomorrow. It's the like a race car, me. right?
1: Like a race car yeah, totally. or an airplane. You wouldn't put like unleaded fuel grade 80, 84 in that race car, right? But we were forced to put less than optimum fuel into our bodies. And luckily somebody got smart and started bringing personal chefs and food trucks around to the races. So these guys definitely have it, have it good. One thing that I, I should touch back on about most fresh res- French restaurants, at the end of the meal they would often wheel out a little cheese cart and back in the day i would just look at that and say oh god i don't want to eat that and it would come back you know they'd have all the different cheeses some would be soft some would be hard and <laughs> as an american like the only cheese that i knew when i first went over to europe was cheddar cheese and that was orange and as i, I know say, now it's the wrong color it's the wrong color <laughs> right but that was the thing like if it wasn't orange and if it wasn't hard um I, I didn't eat it, but once I retired, that now is like my favorite part of the meal. The French meal is when that cheese cart comes out. I'm much more adventurous with seafood and cheese now than I was back then. But you know, you just get into your rhythm of eating the same thing and kind of that protocol, and you don't want to, you know, eat anything too too touchy because. Yeah, as we've seen in the tour, there's a whole entire team that has gastrointestinal problems right now because maybe they had one bad meal one night.
2: Bobby, before we move on, I know I said that before, but strangest teammates' eating habits. Like cyclists are pretty
1: weird when it comes to food. Yeah, I, I, I have to say you eat a lot as, as a cyclist, especially in, in the tour. My wife used to say, like, I can't keep the refrigerator full. You just eat everything. But then once I retired, it was odd. I, I started eating a lot less, but obviously gained, gained weight because mm-hmm. I wasn't doing anything anymore. But some of the funny eating habits, I'd have to go back to number one was Sean Yates. When when I first was a pro with him at Motorola, he would eat the end of the baguette and he would you know cut off the end scoop out the innards, <laughs> fill it with olive oil and garlic and, and, and eat that, which, which made for some very pungent odors later at in, at night in the room. That's um, so fucked up. <laughs> uh, the sure amount of food that Jens Vogt and Cadell Evans could consume was mind boggling. That was really impress so impressive. And you know, those, both those guys were, you know, absolutely skinny down to you know four or five percent all the time uh o'grady had a very interesting way of chewing his food so we would be jens and i when we sat down we we had that boarding house reach we were just woofing everything down left right and center but Stuart, every and i i guess he learned this when he was a young kid maybe at the dinner table with his mom and dad Mm -hmm. but he had a a way of chewing his food that i think he chewed every bite of food 20 or 30 times dude that's got to be australian because
2: like a lot of us like i yeah my parents would say that to me and a lot of people that i know do that i mean i don't do it but like
1: it really helps with digestion there's no doubt about it compared to me and jen's basically half not even chewing our food just woofing it down like a dog yeah that we would be done and he would basically just be starting his pasta, and we would just clear out of there. And there's poor old Stewie O'Grady just sitting at the table by himself, chewing his food 20 or 30 times per bite. That was <laughs> that was amazing. But um, one of the funniest things, because when you're on a team, especially at training camp, and when a guy is on regime, he's trying to show mm-hmm. how little he can eat at the table. But I had this teammate on Kofidis, and you know, he'd sit there to the end. And normally I was kind of like the slower eater earlier in in my career. I would just kind of sit there and relax a little bit because what are you going to do? Run to your room and stare at the wall back then? You didn't have, you know, Netflix and and iPhones to do. And I noticed that we always had this little food box with the stuff from breakfast. Mm -hmm. And after he kind of fronted and showed us all that, oh no, I'm on regime. I'm not going to eat this. I'm not going to eat that. I would catch him going into the breakfast box, pulling out that big giant tub of Nutella and Nutella has got to be one of the best inventions on the planet. I mean, oh, I can't, yeah. that, that stuff is just delicious, right? And then I'd see him, he'd grab a spoon, duck it in the Nutella, take out this big whopping mounding spoonful and just put it in his mouth and boom, suck on it. And I'd be like, wait a second, this is the guy that is supposed to be on Regime and all of a sudden he's sucking down like, you know, you know, this massive spoonful thousand of thousand calories in one spoonful, <laughs> and a couple times I caught him going back in for the double dip. After he put that spoon in his mouth, then he goes back in, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not touching the Nutella in the morning because his all of his saliva is down in there. So, yeah, those are just a those are just a couple of the the funny stories of eating habits of ex-teammates of mine. So, Bobby, let's uh, let's move on and
2: talk about tomorrow's stage. Little downhill run, two hundred seventeen point five k what's it what's it look like
1: yeah just 217.5k with a 7.1 kilometer neutral we're still in the massive central so this is not just going to be a cakewalk no doubt about it i think we're going to see a little bit more of what we saw today i would be really surprised if they gave the group as much leeway as they did today that breakaway at one Mm -hmm. time i think had 16 minutes so i don't think that's going to happen i think there will be a break that has to be established you know, we do have one Cat 4 and three Cat 3s, so it's definitely not flat. But I think it's going to be a sprinter's day. You know, they, you know, it's like a balance, right? Like one day we have this super exciting, intense stage. Guys are tired, and it kind of flips the other way. So I think we're going to go back to that really controlled by the sprinter's team stage as much as they can, obviously. Um, yeah. Being on those dead roads, it's not going to be easy for anybody. We're in the 10th stage of the tour. Fatigue is starting to set in. You know, there, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's a there's a um, rest day following. So I think this is going to be a sprint day. And my pick is going to be... I'd love to pick Caleb Ewan, but I think I've rode that wave all the way to the beach. Um, <laughs> Viviani would be an easy pick, Gronawagen would be another easy pick, but I kind of want to go off script a little bit here and pick an outsider. You know, I'm going to pick Christophe from UAE Bold. getting together with the youngest rider in the Tour de France, Philippe as a lead out man. And they're going to mm. get it right because they missed it a couple stages ago. But if they get that right, I'm going with Christophe for the win. That's actually a good pick, man, because, uh, he he sort of he
2: gets over the lumpy stuff. He handles it pretty well, and he's a pretty dogged sprinter. You know, when it's when it's hard, he's uh, he's always good on the pedals. Look, I <laughs> I forced you not to choose Ewan because I want, <laughs> I wanted Ewan. So I'm I'm choos- I've got to I've got to have uh, Caleb Ewan. I think tomorrow he was close the other day, uh, and yeah, now that he's available, I'm going to take it.
1: And and his team is on a roll, right? Like Absolutely, They're, they're, yeah, exactly they're right. lighting up this yeah. first week of the tour. So that's a good pick. And, you know, I've picked him three times and he hasn't won, so maybe you're his lucky charm.
2: Yeah, well, only time will tell. Bobby, thank you so much. Another fantastic show. Uh, Tomorrow we'll be back again. And um, don't forget to uh, subscribe, P-Y-S-O, on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter, at Voices. Uh, On uh, the News website, VeloNews.com, you can uh, also get... uh, the show. Thank you guys for listening.
1: Bobby, thank you very much. Thank you, Gus. Thanks everyone out there and as always, don't forget to put your socks on. Ever wanted a t-shirt featuring Bob Roll, the man not the myth, riding an ostrich? I mean, who hasn't, right? To celebrate the 2019 edition of the tour, Road ID has re-released their bob roll inspired let's ride t-shirt this was a cult favorite back in 2012 i want one i know gus has probably already put his order in but these classy items are only available in very limited quantities so if you're an admirer of bob like we all are or ostriches for that matter hurry on over to roadid.com bob before they're gone
0: Nice.